Welcome to the Word on Wednesday podcast for July 20. My name is John Mason. Thank you for joining us. William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury during the Second World War, remarked, The Church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. How often we put aside the missional nature of Christianity that bubbles through the Bible, and especially in the Book of Psalms. At the Anglican Connection Conference last year, Dr. Jim Saladin, Senior Minister of Emmanuel Anglican Church, New York City, gave two Bible reflections, morning and afternoon, on Psalm 96. He spoke on the missional focus of the Psalms' theme, that there is only one Lord. Here is the first of Jim's reflections with the title, Worship Animates Evangelism. We're grateful for his permission to use them for this week's Word on Wednesday podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, It's great to be with you today, to kind of sort of be with you, um, but it's really great to be part of the conference this morning. Um, Let's get into it. We're going to be looking at Psalm 96 this morning, um, and we're also going to look at it this afternoon. Uh, Right now, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 6, and that means that we get to talk about the motivation for evangelism or the motivation for gospel proclamation. Um, What is it that motivates us to proclaim the gospel? What is it that motivates evangelism? And it seems to me that this is a pretty important question because um, most people, at least most Bible-believing Christians, I hope, agree that we should all be proclaiming the gospel, that we should be doing evangelism. But despite that, the reality is evangelism is scary, gospel proclamation is difficult, and a lot of our people are timid or sometimes ashamed. Um, And let's face it, even those of us who are pastors or preachers or gospel proclaimers, um, sometimes we're timid. And sometimes, are we not? We're ashamed. So what is it that motivates evangelism? What is it that animates gospel proclamation? What is it that moves it from duty to delight? Well, Psalm 96 helps us here, and Psalm 96 tells us that the answer to that question is worship. Worship animates evangelism. Let me say it this way. You will proclaim the gospel when you are captivated by the glory of God. Now, let me show you what I mean. Um, Psalm 96. It's kind of an odd psalm in a variety of different ways, but one reason it's a little odd is that it's a worship song obviously, but it's a worship song that is packed full of commandments. In many respects, it's addressing the people of God. Just look at the first few verses. The psalm is just quivering with commandments. It says, sing, sing, sing three times, and then bless and tell and declare. All of those commands happen in the first three verses. So clearly, this psalm wants us to do something. So what is it that it wants us to do? Well, we find out in verse 3. Take a look at it. We are to, verse 3, declare the Lord's glory among the nations. So there it is. This psalm is a commission. It's a commission to proclaim and to tell and to declare and even to sing the Lord's glory. Or verse 2, the Lord's salvation to all nations. This is quite a bit like the Great Commission. 
It's as if Psalm 96 stands up and says, hey, whole world, listen up, listen to me. Psalm 96 says, join me, the whole earth and every nation, get on board, declaring God's glory among all nations, proclaiming his glory, evangelizing, and tell everyone about the Lord of Israel. Now, I don't know if that surprises you, but very it's very rare that we hear people talk about how the Great Commission is anticipated in the Old Testament, but there it is. However, again, my question is a why question. Why does this psalm think that we should go out and proclaim the Lord among all the nations? What's the motivation? Why should we proclaim the Lord? And that brings us to verse 4. What's the motivation for gospel ministry? Look at verse 4. It says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Okay, the psalmist is convinced that the Lord is great. In fact, the psalmist is convinced that the Lord is so great and so magnificent and so powerful and so glorious that he outshines every other little false god that any nation could think of or imagine. This psalmist is driven by the conviction that the Lord is glorious and his proclamation is driven by that conviction. His proclamation is driven by the worship of the Lord, by how he values the glory of the Lord. Now keep that in mind and look with me more closely at verse five, because you can see a contrast. There's a contrast between the worthless idols and the Lord who made the heavens. Do you see that? Now his argument here is kind of interesting to me uh, because I expect the psalmist to say, the Lord is real and the idols are fake or, or just don't exist. They're just not real gods. Now that's true. The Lord is real and the idols are fake, but that's not the argument the psalmist is making here. The argument is a value argument. The argument is the Lord is way more valuable than all the other made up idols that the nations have. The argument is that the Lord is more worthy of worship than all the made up idols that the nations have. The argument is the idols are stupid and worthless and vain. And when you really see the glory of the Lord, and when you see the Lord who created everything, then you'll want to drop your idols like they're bad habits. Now, can you see? This is an argument that is animated by worship. It's an argument that only really works if the proclaimer really thinks that the Lord is supremely valuable. And we can fill in a little bit more detail here because in verse five, the Lord is supremely valuable and worthy of worship because he created everything. In verse two, the Lord is glorious and supremely valuable and worthy of worship because of his works of salvation. Now catch that. The Lord is glorious because of both creation and redemption. You got to keep them together. So the psalmist, it's as if the psalmist says, 
Look at all that God did in creation. Look at all the beauty of this world. Look at the sky and the mountains. Look at humanity. Look at all that humanity has constructed. God is ultimately responsible for all that is beautiful and compelling about this world. And that means that if you find anything that's compelling in this world, don't bother worshiping that. Worship the one who created that compelling thing. The things that you see in this world that are beautiful are mere Shadows of the glory of God. Look at the one who made it all. He's more glorious than everything. But then the psalmist adds, think about God's work of redemption and salvation. Think about the story of all that God did for Israel, the Passover and the Exodus and manna in the wilderness and all of it, and then put the works of redemption connected to the works of creation, put all that together and you get a little glimpse of the glory of God and how he dwarfs all other possible competitors. Now, friends, that conviction, that heart worship that says the Lord is more glorious than anything that we can conceive, that heart worship is what drives boldness in proclamation. See, when you can see verse six, you see verse six? the splendor and the majesty and the strength and the beauty that are before the Lord, when you can see that, that is when you, it'll make sense for you to start obeying the commands at the beginning of the psalm. Sing, 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 bless, tell, declare the glory of the Lord among the nations. Worship drives evangelism. And that begs the question that you know I'm going to ask. Worship drives evangelism. Does worship drive you? Now, most of us are Christian leaders. Many of us are pastors. Um, you know how sometimes you have people, maybe in your congregation or people that you're speaking with about the Lord, and they're uh, they're pretty moral. They usually follow the rules, or at least they think they're moral. Um, and they vaguely agree with correct doctrine. Um, sometimes these are the hardest people to deal with because you get to know them a little bit and you realize that despite their vaguely correct doctrine and their vague morality, um, their hearts are still cold. Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it appears that they are not yet driven or captivated by the glory of God and by love for the Lord. Now, when you meet somebody like that, what do they need? You know the answer to this. You know what they need. They need the gospel, right? They need verse three. They need to see the glory of God, and they need the glory of God declared to them. And so that's what we do, right? Okay, now keep that in your mind. Because here's the thing. It's possible to be a preacher. It's possible. It's possible to be a good preacher. It's possible to be a Bible expositor. It's possible to say pretty much all the right things and yet still have a cold heart. Let me ask you, when you look at verse 6, can you see verse six? And I'm not asking, can you read the words? And I'm not even asking, can you exposit verse six? I'm asking, can you see from your soul and can you taste something of the Lord's splendor and majesty and his strength and his beauty? Can you taste it? Or when you say verse four, when, you know, the first four says the Lord is great. It, when you say that is... Do you say that as, yes, that is a correct statement, and boy, golly gee, I agree. Or is it the deep, fundamental, burning conviction of your soul? And if I look at my heart and I find it, it's a, it's a lot colder than I wish it was, what do I do? What do I need to do? 
Well, you know what I need. It's the same thing that your parishioner needs. I need, verse 3, I need the glory of God declared to my soul. And you know where we see the glory of God most clearly, don't you? We see the glory of God most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made, creation. Jesus Christ, the epicenter of redemption, joined together when he was lifted up on the cross. He was lifted up the cro- up on the cross so that we could be lifted up out of our sin. And he died so that our heart of stone could be replaced by a heart of flesh. And he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so if my look at my heart and I find it cold and therefore I find myself timid in evangelism or maybe even secretly ashamed of the gospel, then what I need to do and maybe what you need to do too is to look at Jesus Christ again. Look at the glory of God upon the cross. Look at him and receive his mercy again and you will be able to taste and see the splendor and the might and the beauty and the glory of God. And as that settles upon your soul, you'll not be able to keep your mouth shut. You will want to sing, sing, sing of his glory among the nations. Lord Christ, eternal word and light of the Father's glory, send your light and your truth so that we may both know and proclaim your word of life to the glory of God the Father. For you now live and reign God for all eternity. Amen.
people involved in today's podcast are John Mason, speaker and writer, and Dr. Jim Saladin, Senior Minister of Emmanuel Anglican Church, New York City. The opening and closing music is from St. Andrew's Cathedral, Sydney, and the ironic blessing is sung by the Chamber Choir of the Cathedral under the direction of Ross Cobb. Please let us know if you have a question or a comment about this podcast. We'd love to hear from you.